Today on Truth and Politics and Culture, the dominoes start to fall in the Georgia racketing case. <clears throat> Let's back up and call that what it is, the racketeering case against Trump. The U.N. Secretary General insults Israel as world opinion begins to turn toward the Palestinians, and Trump takes out Emmer in the House Speaker race. This is Dr. Tony Beam, and it's time to crank it up. everybody if you're listening on facebook live <clears throat> excuse me it's gonna be one of those days or watching on facebook live uh thanks for joining us this morning and if you're listening to the podcast whatever time of day it is i hope you're having a great day and i appreciate you downloading the show being a follower being a listener hope you're enjoying the content Okay, uh, late night last night, I, I had to drive a couple of hours, actually two and a half hours down to the lower part of the state for a Baptist associational meeting as I was actually representing North Greenville University and I was also representing the South Carolina Baptist Convention. By the way, for those of you who are no, new to the podcast or if you just found me on Facebook, um, just a little bit of information, I serve as the Senior Director of Church and Community Engagement for North Greenville University, where Christ makes the difference and where we are equipping transformational leaders for the church and for society. I also serve as the director of the Office of Public Policy for the South Carolina Baptist Convention. And what else do I do? Well, I do some interim pastorate work. I'm about to finish up at Five Forks. Sunday will be my last day there preaching as the new pastor, um, uh, Jeff Black, comes onto the field. He'll start a week from today. So um, that's just some of the duties uh, that I go about during the day. And part of that representing North Greenville takes me to a lot of these Baptist associational meetings. And they're usually held in the evening. And so, boy, uh, got home really late last night. Um, kind, of, uh, kind of hard getting started this morning. But uh, it's okay. I am a professional. So we will, we will work through it all. And um, I'm very grateful for all of you who are listening and following the program today. Uh, all right, Michael Cohen testified in the New York civil case brought by Attorney General Letitia James. And of course, you know, that case is all about the accusation that Trump falsified business records, that he overestimated the value of his business holdings in order to get bank loans and to put himself in a stronger negotiating position. And of course, as we talked about ad nauseum on the show, because we have to remind people of these things every time we talk about a new development. Uh, this, isn't, this is not something new. This is not something that um, uh, businesses um, don't do. They, they do in New York in particular, I mean, that, but everywhere. Um, every business is going to put the best face that it can on what the business is, how much it's valued, when it's going to get a loan. I mean, you know, when I go get a loan, I mean, I, I just recently had to purchase a, a new truck uh, because my truck, uh, a deer decided to take out my truck uh, on uh, one night. I was coming back from a speaking engagement on 
Highway 11 here in South Carolina, which is notorious for having deer run out in front of you. And um, and I had to go to the bank. I mean, I had to to go take out a loan. I I got a pretty good settlement on my old truck, but uh, the difference had to be made up. And so I went to get a, a truck loan. And I you know I didn't go in there and pour mouth to the bank. I didn't go in there and tell them how bad things were. And you know I don't, I don't know if I can make the payments or not. You know I'm going to do my best. If you'll just give me this loan, I I I, I promise I'm going to take on an extra job. I might not be able to pay it today, but I, come on. I mean, I didn't lie, but I told them that I was able to pay back the loan, and I presented my situation my situation in the best phase possible. Now, I get it. What President Trump did uh, went further than that, um, but there are plenty of accounting ways. I mean, there, there's not very many accounting ways to misrepresent me. Um, I don't have that many accounts. I don't have that many assets. But for someone like President Trump, who has assets everywhere um, and valuable assets, for those to be valued by him and those who work for him higher than maybe an, an outside estimator would value them, then th- that's, that's part of what takes place in New York, and it's called business. Now, the, the banks that loan the money, uh, nobody lost any money, and the banks didn't question, evidently. I mean, it, you, you know, when somebody comes and says, my businesses are worth X amount of dollars, uh, the bank has an obligation to check that out. Now, the person bringing the information has an obligation to tell the truth. I'm not defending the practice of uh, overvaluing property. I mean, that's not, uh, certainly that's not in line with a biblical worldview. But but the the fact is, that businesses do this on a regular basis, and apparently uh, Letitia James doesn't pay any attention to anybody not named Donald Trump. And so this is selective prosecution, and that makes it something that causes people to get nervous about the justice system in this country. When someone is perceived, rightly or wrongly, but they're perceived as being targeted or singled out because of who they are, or because of their political beliefs, then people begin to think, you know what? If that could happen to him, it could happen to me. And it has happened to other people in our justice system where the justice system seems to put its thumb on the scale when it comes to policy issues, uh, a person involved in policy issues who maybe has legal trouble but agrees with the administration broadly on a host of issues. I mean, we've seen all kinds of abuses like this. We've seen the uh, Obama administration use the IRS to go after nonprofits to try to slow up the process of them to be able to get their nonprofit status so they couldn't be influential against him in an election. Um, and we see the, the government refusing to prosecute some cases, the Justice Department, because they don't agree with the philosophy of those on the other side, regardless of what the law says. And so when you get into situations like this, and you have someone as prominent as President Trump, you have the unprecedented case of a presidential candidate being charged under the RICO, uh, federal RICO uh, racketeering charges down in Georgia, and then you have him in a New York court with a civil suit. Now, this is not the legal case uh, ended up with Alan Wassenberg uh, being uh, going to jail. 
uh, for uh, his involvement in some of the overestimating of Trump's property, but Trump was not implicated in any of that. And so the legal case was settled without Trump really, tr the, uh, tr the uh, Trump Enterprises or whatever the name of, of his organization is, had to pay a fine. I mean, they, they had to pay a, a pretty hefty fine for activity that they were engaged in. But President Trump was, was not hurt by any of that except for the loss of the, of the money for the fine. Well, and then Letitia James, as the uh, attorney general, decides to go after him, decides to sue him, to take him to court on a civil case herself, which is part of a campaign promise that she made to the people of New York. She basically went out and said, look, if you'll elect me as attorney general, I'll take this guy down. And what, what kind of justice system is that? That doesn't sound like the United States. That sounds like some third world country where you, you have 10 horn dictators and their minions who run around and take out the opposition by using the law in some case. Um, now, again, two things can be true at once. I learned that phrase from Ben Shapiro, and I, I use it fairly frequently because it's true. Um, it, it is true that likely that Trump overestimated, overvalued the, the value of his properties to put himself in a better light, to be able to get more favorable loans, and to be able to make better business deals. But it is also true that no one in those circumstances was hurt. In fact, the people who um, allegedly that would have been hurt by all of this showed up in court to testify that they didn't that, that everybody made money in the endeavor and that there was nothing there was nothing that went on that should be brought under criminal scrutiny or anything that should be rise to the level of a civil case but that didn't slow down Letitia James now it's it's also true that again that people who do this routinely are not brought up before the court. I went through, I don't know if you remember, but on the program, and we don't have time to do that again today, of course, but on a previous program, I actually went through about uh, a dozen of the 30-some-odd cases that are, have been brought in New York that could be pointed to, and somebody could say, well, those cases are similar to what the charges are against President Trump, the civil cases against Trump, but, but they're really not. I mean, most of them had something to do with fraud related to COVID. Um, most other cases had something to do with fraud related to insurance, where companies didn't overvalue something. They actually lied about their assets. So this is, you know, that, that's what makes the American people uh, look at this and see this as simply people who have an axe to grind about a candidate that took out their Democrat nominee in 2016 when she was supposed to win by a landslide. And so they've absolutely just gone after him at every turn. And as it, all these charges are things that if, if, he if his name was not Donald Trump, in most cases, he would not be facing. And so it's true that Trump has done things that were um, probably not on the up and up. Let's put it that way. That might be putting it mildly, but he skirted some of the some of the laws um, in in several of these cases, or pushed the laws to the limit. But the, the but and and that's that's true. But it's also true 
that these are not the kind of things that these prosecutors would be going after if they didn't have an axe to grind against the former president. Andrew McCarthy's talked a lot about this and written a lot about it. Um, and, and I agree with McCarthy's assessment when he says that, and, and also former Attorney General Bill Barr, by the way, who's now anathema to Trump, but Barr even said, you, you don't bring charges like this against a presidential candidate when you're running the Justice Department, you're the opposition, you're the president, you're the sitting president, and you have the Justice Department at your disposal, the Attorney General reports to you, and it's just, it. You, you don't go after a candidate that is your number one competitor unless that candidate has done something that is so above the, you know, so far beyond the norm that it has to be prosecuted or you've got a slam dunk case. And neither one of those things are true when it comes to President Trump. And so this looks like political persecution. I mean, it looks like uh, the the use of the of the Justice Department to decide the outcome of an election. It looks like people who had access to grind against President Trump in Georgia and in New York going after him for various reasons. And that's why the American people. If if you want to know why people are rallying to Trump as a candidate, that's why uh, the American people hate injustice. They don't want to see people treated unfairly. And if you treat them unfairly, then they're going to rally to the side of the underdog, the person that they believe is being treated unfairly, even if that person may be responsible for some of the things that's happened to them. I mean, I've, I've, from the beginning, I've said Trump could have avoided every bit of the, uh, the secret document, the classified document scandal that turned into criminal charges if he had just responded when the archives asked for the documents to be turned back in instead of doing what he did, which is move the documents around, uh, refuse to turn them in. Now, and, and please, I hear you. You know, I tell you, told you before, even on the podcast, if you scream at the radio, I can hear you. Or you scream at whatever you're listening, whatever wherever you're streaming. I can hear screaming through streaming. Wow. Okay, so anyway, I know that there are people who say, what, what, what about Biden? What about Biden? What about, well, I get it. Biden is right now getting away with what some people say is a worse top secret classified document case than President Trump was involved in. But the, the point is, though, Biden is, is not getting away with it. We, we talked about this last week, that the prosecutor in that case is beginning to ask some pretty probing questions, and it's taking longer um, don't expect to see Biden charged with anything while he's president of the United States. That's That's been established when uh, Trump was president that there's not going to be criminal charges brought, but this could enhance Republicans in the House who are looking into an impeachment inquiry to see if uh, President Biden should be impeached. And, of course, if there was to be information surfaced to prove that President Biden intentionally mishandled some of these documents— uh, that it wasn't just a case of misplaced documents or they, these went in the wrong box and they ended up, you know, next to my Corvette in my garage. That If, if it turns out that this was intentional, then that could go a long way to aiding House Republicans in getting impeachment charges that, quite frankly, if, if you've got le a legitimate case against Biden um, in the documents case, it's going to be hard for some Democrats to just simply say, well, there's nothing to see here. And I'm talking about Democrats in the Senate 
which is where an impeachment trial would take place. Now, I'm not suggesting that the Senate would remove Biden from office, but I'm saying it might be possible that a few senators, Democrat senators, could be peeled away and to vote for uh, removal if if strong enough evidence came out of the document case. And, you know, what? who knows what that would do to the election um, as far as Biden's ability to get people to go vote for him. All right. Um, Cohen testified uh, last week, as we said, uh, he testified that he and Alan Weisselberg played key roles in the fraud. Cohen said Trump would give them a figure, leave it up to them to, ma- to manipulate the assets evaluation, uh, doing whatever was needed to make the property reach the value of the, the, uh, the number that Trump gave them. So Trump, let's, let's just say Trump says this, uh, this building's worth $20 billion or $20, uh, $20 million. Let's keep it in the million range. Um, this, this building is worth $20 million. Maybe it's only worth 10, but Trump gives them the, the figure 20 million. And then Cohen and Weisselberg, they figure out a way to inflate the value or to present it in such a way that it looks like the, the asset or the building is worth $20 million because that's the number that Trump gave them. Now that's what Cohen testified to, uh, to Trump was in the courtroom yesterday. He and Cohen we're face-to-face for the first time, actually, in about five years. And, of course, outside the courthouse, Cohen was playing to the cameras. He was talking about the fact that this wasn't about him. This wasn't about uh, President Trump. It was about presenting the evidence. It was presenting the truth. And then the judge in the case is going to have to figure out which way to go. So he's still trying to kind of play the middle of the street. Here's Cohen yesterday. Not about Donald Trump versus Michael Cohen or Michael Cohen versus Donald Trump. This is about accountability, plain and simple, and we leave it up to Judge Angoron in order to make all the determinations on that. Yeah, you you would like for me to believe, Ben, that this long relationship that you had with President Trump, where you were the so-called fixer, I mean, it goes back to all the way through the mid-2000s, uh, they only parted company when Cohen was investigated for his role in Stormy Daniels, the Stormy Daniels payoff. Uh, so, so you're telling me, uh, Cohen is trying to get me to believe this is just about accountability. I'm just doing my duty. Well, what about all those times when you were in the middle of this case and you were working with Weisselberg to inflate the value when Trump asked you to do it? I mean, this isn't about accountability. This is about personal, um, there's a lot of personal feelings here between Trump and and Cohen. And there's uh, personalities involved. There's uh, broken trust. I mean, all of that. And of course, President Trump came out and basically said that uh, Cohen was a rat and a serial liar um, and that the whole case against him is just a bunch of lies. But the more, you know, people like Cohen who end up, speaking for the prosecution, the harder it is for Trump to defend himself in these cases. Now, there's also, and and speaking of people that are willing to cut a deal and then testify against the former president, there's been a lot of developments down in the Georgia case. President Trump's been indicted, of course, uh, by a grand jury on federal racketeering charges for allegedly leading a criminal enterprise to interfere with and illegally change the outcome of the 2020 presidential election in Georgia. Now, I guess the standard has become that after a presidential election, if you ask any questions about how the votes were cast, then you're 
you're the head of a criminal enterprise. All of this, bringing the racketeering charges um, against these defendants, is is a is using a hammer uh, to swat at a mosquito. I mean, this is the, the, it, it's completely unnecessary. It's it maybe Trump went a little bit too far in the way he was pushing Georgia officials and the way that he was trying to get alternative. Uh, alternative electors ready in the event that the one of the court cases went far enough to um, overturn the results in a particular state. Yeah, but none of that, it, to me, rises to the level of the racketeering charges that Willis has brought. Um, and she's been able to indict 18 people in addition to Trump. And now the fourth co-defendant has cut a deal with the prosecutors and is going to be offering testimony against Trump. Yesterday, um, Attorney Jenna Willis agreed to a plea deal that includes five years probation, $5,000 in restitution, and she has to perform 100 hours of community service. And she had a pretty tearful um, statement outside the courtroom and says she regretted if she knew uh, then what she knows now about the uh, investigation into or t- the election results and all the facts about it. Yet, you know, I, I have to say that that just doesn't ring true. I mean, she was in the middle of this case. She was Trump's attorney. She gave press conferences. She outlined evidence. And now to say if she knew then what she knows now, I mean, what could she possibly know now that she didn't know then when she was in the middle of that case, when she had access to every single thing that was going on as it related to the alleged election fraud? Now, she may be saying that she's interpreting the evidence differently now in light of new evidence that has been discovered. Okay, but that's essentially not what she said. She didn't go to that level. So I just think all of these people, I mean, the prosecutors have done what prosecutors do. They go in, they charge everybody with the highest counts that they can possibly get, and and then they sort through and try to get as many people to flip as they can to go after the person that they really want. And, of course, that person in every one of these cases, every one of the, the cases where Trump is in a courtroom, the person that they want is Trump. And so if they can get the other people that were involved, uh, if they can offer them some kind of plea deal that keeps them out of jail and gets them out of the soup, whether they're guilty or not, they've got all of this evidence or all of these charges against them that could mount up to some serious prison time. A lot of them are willing to take a plea deal and to tell the prosecutor what they want to know um, uh, and even agree with the prosecutor's outline of what they believe is the crime in order to avoid prison time. Two other attorneys other than Jenna um, uh, Ellison were have also cut deals, Sidney Powell and Kenneth Cheesebro. They took plea deals and uh, last week both of them pleaded guilty. Scott Hall, a bail bondsman, was the first to take a deal. He pleaded guilty last month and he received a sentence that was similar to the other three defendants, most of them $5,000 fines or restitution, uh, five years probation, and various numbers of hours of community service. For whatever reason, Scott Hall got 200 hours and Jenna Ellis only got 100. But uh, but for, for the most part, these sentences are tracking together. 
Uh, Hull was told that he would have to provide a recorded statement for the DA's office, and he's already done that. And like the other defendants who took a plea, he's also going to have to be prepared to testify in court. So that's where the cases stand, uh, down in Georgia and up in New York, at least the civil trial. Uh, we don't know about the other case yet with the payments to Stormy Daniels. Uh, that is, we're waiting on um, news or evidence or information about that case to come out. But I wanted to step away from the Israel-Hamas conflict for a little bit today and give you an update on what's going on because a, a lot of the news media uh, are, are barely covering developments in these trials because every headline and every story is about the war in the Middle East. And I get that. I mean, it, you, you've got the United States uh, sending more assets to the Middle East, and you've got public opinion now that's beginning to divide. And Ben Shapiro's talked a lot about this, and I, you know, I, I agree. I, I, you, you, when you listen to Shapiro talk about this war, you have to remember that he is an Orthodox Jew who travels to Israel fairly regularly for to observe holidays. He and his family are uh, are very Orthodox in their belief, and and that has to color a little bit the way he looks at this. I mean, it, it can't help but do that. I mean, Orthodox Jews love the state of Israel and they're going to they're going to support Israel. He happens to be right about this. I mean, the fact that he's passionate about it because of who he is doesn't change the fact that the things that he's sharing are absolutely correct. But the passion and the amount of time that he talks about it is is often guided by his relationship to the state of Israel. Um, in the last 24 hours, Israel's continued to increase the intensity of its attacks in Gaza targeting Hamas strongholds. Uh, they claim that in a 24-hour period, I think they hit 400 separate stronghold targets in Gaza. And it's, of course, it's in preparation for the all of this preparation for the ground assault. They formed a special operations force that's assigned to track down every Hamas terrorist who took part in the attack. Uh, reports say the task force has spent um, hundreds of hours looking at video surveillance tapes to the point that they can identify all of the Hamas terrorists who participated, and now they're going to go hunt them down. Israeli Defense Minister put out a pretty stark warning to the terrorists. He said, be killed or surrender unconditionally. So that's their choice. And now they've got highly trained um, spe a special force from Israel, the IDF, out looking for them. The United States is continuing to negotiate with third parties, uh, for the release of the 200-plus hostages in Gaza. I, you know, I, I, I know you, I guess you, you have to do this. I don't know what happened to the idea that we don't negotiate with terrorists because we're obviously, even though we may be going through third parties, we're trying to cut a deal with the Hamas terrorists to get the hostages out. Now, now don't misunderstand me. I want the hostages safe. Uh, I just don't think that you can negotiate with a, a group like Hamas and have any confidence that your negotiation is going to be uh, whatever they say that they're going to actually do. I mean, lying is part of who they are. Um, and saying whatever is necessary, just like Iran um, and any other terrorist state, that they're going to say whatever's necessary to, to give them the best advantage and then do whatever it is they think is in their best advantage, regardless of what they've said. Um, but the talks, anyway, appear to be stalled because 
Hamas wants fuel and Israel won't agree because they know that any fuel that goes into Palestine is going to be used against Israeli soldiers once the ground war begins. Um, and so far, there have been two groups of people around the world that has kind of formed those who want Israel back to back off and those who support Israel's right to eliminate Hamas. Right now, President Biden and Secretary of State Anthony Blinken are in the first are in the second camp. They're supporting Israel's right to go after Hamas. Now I believe that the ground war hasn't started because the United States is trying to hold Israel back as long as possible so that they can try to get the hostages out. Uh, but I, I don't know how much longer that that, that can last. I mean, Israel's gonna have to go in and take out Hamas. They cannot allow Hamas to operate in Gaza anymore. Uh, because of, of the, the fact that it, it's, a, it's a clear fact, it's been established, that Hamas wants all the Jews dead. I mean, they say that, and they've, they've carried out atrocities, which people have short memories. I mean, the, the WHO and the UN is calling for a ceasefire, ostensibly to negotiate, to have time to negotiate for the hostages and to get more aid into Gaza. Any aid that goes into Gaza goes to Hamas. They cannot guarantee that the people are going to benefit from anything that goes into Gaza because Hamas runs the place, and they're going to they're going to take any kind of uh, provisions or food to to support the soldiers that are actually fighting. Now that's what they consider themselves. I mean, they're it, it's it's a band of terrorists, but they consider themselves soldiers, and they have all these the tunnels that they've established under Gaza where they can take provisions that come in from the UN and store them up to keep these terrorists in play on the battlefield. Um, and that's likely what's going to happen. I mean, look, do I want the people of Palestine to be cared for? Do I want their needs to be met? Do I want humanitarian aid to reach them? Of course, any civilized person, any person with a biblical worldview looks at people created in the image of God and wants them to be cared for when they're caught between two fighting forces like this. But the, the plain fact of the matter is, it's not as simple as just roll the trucks in and let the people get the food that they need. Uh, Hamas makes it complicated uh, because in their mind, it is simple. Anything that shows up in the country can legitimately be used to eliminate every Jew in Israel. That, that is their goal, and that hasn't changed. Just because people are beginning to forget, I mean, the, the idea of what Hamas did to Israel is starting to fade a little bit in some people's minds. It doesn't change the fact of what's happened. Um, UN Secretary General Guterres caused outrage in Israel by basically saying that you know he, he jumped in on the two sides that there's two sides to this and that he he's one of the moral equivalent people right now or basically saying that there's a moral equivalency between the Palestinian people and Israel and it's caused what he specifically said has has caused a lot of outrage this is the story uh, coming out of the times of Israel today uh, Israeli officials railed at UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres Tuesday after he appeared to suggest 
the impetus for the Hamas terror group's devastating October 7 attack on Israel was the Jewish state's continued control of Palestinian territories with the Israeli ambassador to the UN demanding that he resign. And this was this statement by Guterres is ludicrous. Uh, this is what he said. He said, quote, It is important to recognize the attacks by Hamas did not happen in a vacuum. And he went on to say uh, that the Palestinian people have been subjected to 56 years of suffocating occupation. They've been, they have seen their land steadily devoured by settlements and plagued by violence. Their economy stifled, their people displaced, and their homes demolished. Their hopes for a political solution to their plight have been vanishing. Well, yes, those things are true. But they're true because they've embraced a bunch of terrorists to be their leaders. I mean, all, all of this, Israel pumps aid into Gaza. Israel left Gaza in 2004, turned it over to the Palestinian people who turned around and turned it over to a pack of terrorists. And then they wonder why their economy hasn't developed. They wonder why their position in the world hasn't improved because all they're using Gaza for is a launching place for rockets into Israel to kill as many Jews as possible. And that's why none of this, this makes any sense. When you start talking about years of political occupation, well, how about mention the fact that Israel turned the land over to them since 2004 and they have done nothing with it in terms of trying to make it a paradise for the people. They're trying to turn it into um, a, you know, a, the, a, an opportunity, as I said, a launching pad for the destruction of the Jews. Israel evacuated all settlements and military forces from Gaza under the 2005 disengagement uh, agreement. It has maintained a tight blockade of the territory since Hamas took control in 2007, as has Egypt, with Jerusalem saying it must do so to limit the terror group's ability to arm itself for attacks. Yes, there's a blockade. You've got a bunch of thugs running the country that want to get weapons to kill people, the people that gave them the land. Yeah, it's it's this myth that's been going on for um, I guess almost as long as I've been alive is this idea of land for peace. If if the if the people of Israel, if the Israeli government would just give up a little bit more land, it's all a lie, because any land given up to the terrorists is going to be used to attack Israel. Period, and that's why they've had to have a blockade. They let. Um, aid go in, but they have to, the Israelis have to control it. They can't allow Hamas, who runs the place, to negotiate with arms dealers from around the world and just let them sail into port in Gaza. I, I mean, they're, they're still getting weapons, obviously, obviously coming from Iran. There's uh, plenty of black market options, but Israel has to do something to prevent all of this from just flowing into um, uh, it, it, you know, flowing into Israel uh, or flowing into Gaza when they know that what the Hamas is going to do, as we've said before, is take any kind of material that gets there and use it against the Jewish people. Guterres added that the grievances of the Palestinian people cannot justify the appalling ta attacks by Hamas. Oh, well, thanks for putting a footnote in there as if the attacks of Hamas were a secondary issue. All of this was started because Hamas decided to create a second Holocaust or the worst uh, killing of Jewish people because they're Jewish since the Holocaust. 
And those appalling attacks cannot those appalling attacks cannot justify the collective punishment of the Palestinian people. Uh, an apparent reference to Israel's ongoing campaign of airstrike strikes in the Gaza Strip that Hamas officials say has killed thousands. So this is, I mean, UN envoy Gilead Erdan called the, the comments by Guterres shocking and demanded that the Secretary General resign. Foreign Minister Eli Cohen canceled a meeting with Guterres and Minister Benny Gantz labeled the UN chief a terror apologist. Well, yeah, uh, that's what that's what he is. I mean, he's a the the UN chief is a terrorist at this at this moment, and on this subject, he's basically being an apologist for the terrorist. Um, and it's Ben Shapiro had a piece yesterday that I thought was um, in, in really interesting. I actually listened to it, but I've got some of the copy here. He talks about the three big lies that the West tells itself about Israel and Hamas um, and, and the Middle East. And one of those lies is that constantly Israel hears from even its allies, even the United States, that it has to be cautious, that Israel has to behave itself in the manner in which it goes after Hamas. They have to abide by the rules of war. Well, when you're saying that, it implies that Israel's goal here is not to abide by the rules of war, but that Israel's bloodthirsty and they're sitting around waiting for the opportunity. Look, if Israel wanted to just simply take um, a sort of a, a bloodthirsty uh, view to this, an opportunity to go after uh, Hamas, they could have done it because of the rocket attacks that came into the that are continually coming into the country. But Israel has allowed their Iron Dome system to mostly protect them, even though the people have to go shelter every now and then, every time Hamas decides to uh, fire rockets toward Israel, they, they've allowed that to go on, but what they can't allow is the kind of massacre that took place on October 7th. So Israel should be able to defend itself. Yes, uh, that's uh, people pretty much agree with that. But then once they begin to defend themselves, then they, it, this, this idea is that they need to back off now um, and because it's too much or they've got to give an opportunity for some type of agreement that leaves Hamas in power and makes Israel vulnerable to attacks. Um, and, of course, that, that's a lie. Um, then there's a second lie, that we all must remember the vaunted peace process, the two-state solution. You can't have a two-state solution when one of the state's requirements is that the other state doesn't exist. The two-state solution is Palestine without Israel. That's not a two-state solution. It's a one-state solution with one state being driven into the sea. I mean, that, that's what the people want. That's their negotiating point. Or if they do agree in some manner to say, okay, we're going to have a two-state solution, uh, we're, and then one of those states is going to exist for the purpose of destroying the other. They're, they're not going to live in any kind of peace. Now, and the peace process was a ruse. And, you know, as far as the terrorists are concerned, they wanted to use it as an opportunity to get world opinion ginned up against Israel. Yasser Arafat, um, would, if you, we go back in history a little bit, 
Uh, let me just read this paragraph from Shapiro. The peace process was obviously and clearly a ruse undertaken by Yasser Arafat in order to provide the jumping-off point for a genocidal war on the Jews. The peace process that has ended in the election of Hamas in the Gaza Strip, the leadership of Islamic Jihad, and the terror-paying Palestinian Authority in the West Bank, we must, the lie goes, remember the two-state solution. <clears throat> well, it, again, there's no way for it to, it's a lie because there's no way that a two-state solution can work if you're, if, if you're talking about one of the states requiring the destruction of the other. And then finally, Shapiro says there's the third lie, that anti-Zionism has nothing to do with anti-Semitism. And that's currently being encouraged by the equation of anti-Semitism with Islamophobia by a lot of members of the media. And you heard this uh, from the president's press secretary in the last couple of days when she's asked about anti-Semitism and some of the uh, protests that are using anti or attacks against Jewish people for being Jewish, she was asked about that. And when she's asked a question about it, she, she turns around and says, begins to talk about Islamophobia, as if the number of attacks against people of Arab descent are anywhere near the number of attacks that Jewish people receive for simply being Jewish. Are there prejudices against uh, it, the people who are part of Islam, there are. But you might say that there could be some reason for that, considering the fact that there are people who are embracing Islam that are using it as an opportunity to say that every Jew has to die and that everybody in the United States has to die. I mean, these the people that are against Israel to the point that they are, are also pretty much against the want the same fate for the United States that they want for Israel. And so you can understand why there would be a little bit of an uncomfortable relationship with people who embrace Islam. Now, I'm not saying that everybody who embraces Islam goes as far as embracing the radical elements that are demonstrated by Hamas. That, that, and that's obviously not true. But I am stating that because Hamas is part of Islam and represents a faction of Islam, then for people to ask the question, trying to find out what part of Islam a person from the Middle East is engaged in, uh, I, I think that's a legitimate question because you need to know, are, are they someone that's falling on the side of we want all of Israel and, and all of the West destroyed unless they come under Sharia law? That's a legitimate question. And, and the Jewish people, historically, I mean, if you, the, the, there have been multiple attempts to eliminate the Jewish people from the face of the earth. We talked about this a little bit yesterday, going all the way back, actually before, but certainly back to the book of Esther um, and, and the, the plot by Haman to have all of the Jews eradicated. And, and World War II, I mean, Nazi Germany, we could go on and on. And before that, there was open persecution of the Jewish people in, throughout Europe and even in the United States. So th this idea that somehow the, the, you know, there's a moral equivalence that needs to be restored between what is going on in Gaza, 
which is run by a bunch of terrorists, and what's going on in Israel, which is a legitimate state that is a form of democracy. And there can't be any moral equivalency drawn between those two things. All right. Um, hope you're enjoying the program today. Uh, let's, take a, let's take a different turn here. I don't want to let time run out before I get to, the, to talk a little bit about the speaker's race. Right now, all eyes are on Mike Johnson. Uh, this is a story coming from Audrey Fallberg over at National Review. House Majority Whip Tom Emmer dropped out of the race for speaker four hours after he was officially nominated for the post. A source familiar with the matter tells National Review. The Minnesota Republicans' decision to bow out of the race comes after more than two dozen holdouts and former President Trump's expressed opposition to his bid. Uh, Trump put out a series of tweets, uh, several, uh, not tweets, I'm sorry, uh, several posts on social media. Uh, what is the name of his? Uh, it's not social media. That's what all of it is. Uh, Truth Social. There we go. Sorry about that. Uh, I'm telling you, I had a late night last night. If I'm, if, if <laughs> I'm, I'm fortunate to be coherent here today in any form. So um, anyway, Truth, uh, on Truth Social, uh, President Trump called Emmer a rhino, said that he had opposed him and that he was uh, willing to defend Ilhan Omar more than he was willing to defend President Trump. And so after saying all those things, there were about two dozen uh, Republicans that uh, just refused to vote for Emmer. So his nomination went down in flames. So House Republicans were supposed to convene behind closed doors uh, for another candidate forum uh, I think they did that at 6 p.m. Uh, yesterday, and what emerged from that is House GOP Conference Vice Chairman Mike Johnson, who came in second behind Emmer earlier, is going to make another run for the gavel, um, and there are going to be some others that, that want to put their hat in the ring, but I think that Johnson is going to be, he's being sort of designated as the next, uh, the next possible speaker. Um, at 9.10 last night, in the first round of counting or the first round of voting, Johnson had 85 votes. Donalds had 32. Green, uh, Marjorie Taylor Green, 23. Williams, 21. Uh, Fleischman had 10, and others had 31. About some of the others, of course, um, was Mike McCarthy, the former speaker. Uh, excuse me, Kevin McCarthy, the former speaker. Um, and present two. So they had two that didn't vote. So this is, um, once the, the balloting got going, Johnson ended up being the clear winner, and there'll be a vote today um, at some point. I think, again, maybe, I don't know if it was early, this is going to be early this morning or uh, maybe at noon, but at some point today they're going to take another vote and see if they can get uh, Johnson elected as speaker. Uh, some say Mike Johnson is the best chance that they've had so far, but, I mean, am I confident that they're going to come up with a speaker? I am not, because what I, I don't know what it's going to take for a speaker to be elected at this point. Um, I know that it, I, I believe, and others think it's a great thing that all this is going on, but I believe this is hurting the Republican Party. Uh, it makes us look like we don't know what we're doing. It makes it um, I think it makes it difficult um, for us to be able to make a coherent case to the American people as we head into the election. 
Uh, this is going to affect budget negotiations when we get to the point where we've got to have another continuing resolution or shut the government down. Uh, I just think there's, there's just a lot of issues here uh, that are hurting Republicans, and I hope today they can actually come up with a winner. All right, let me take a minute and thank again our sponsor for Truth and Politics and Culture. It's the McCravey Newland Sturkey Clarity Law Firm, where they have a proven track record of 25 years of helping to um, help people that are in a situation where they need a personal injury lawyer. And they're one of the law firms that's willing and ready to fight for you. So if you're looking for experienced, successful personal injury lawyers in South Carolina, then you're going to the right place if you go to McCraveyLaw.com. That's M-C-C-R-A-V-Y Law. Com. That's the best way to get in touch with them. They'll be glad to give you a free estimate. Uh, whether your case involves a car accident, workplace injury, slip and fall, medical malpractice, or even wrongful death, you will have the representation that exceeds your expectations if you go to McCravey Law. M-C-C-R-A-V-Y um, law.com, or you can call for a free consultation, 833 245 6565. That's 833-245-6565. And they will will do a good job for you. They know South Carolina law, which is important. If you're dealing, obviously, if you're dealing with people, um, uh, or if you're trying to help people in the state of South Carolina, if you know what the law is, you have a much better chance of making a, a good case. And McCravey Law is... They, they know what they're doing. They know what South Carolina law says. So I hope you'll give them a call. I hope you give them a try. And by the way, if you do, do me a favor and tell them that you heard about it on Truth and Politics and Culture. All right. Uh, we're going to duck out just a tad bit early this morning, uh, simply because I've, I've got to do go run a few errands before I have a, a meeting today um, on campus. And again, I hope you'll join us again in the morning for Truth and Politics and Culture um, as um, I won't be out so late tonight. So hopefully I can be a little bit more focused tomorrow. If you like the podcast, do me a favor and leave me a good review. If you like the Facebook Live program, please share it with your friends. Bye.